You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Last week, we marked the third anniversary of the world shutting down at the onset of this pandemic. We have learned an awful lot in those three years about things like reproduction value or infection fatality rate, the state of our healthcare systems, mRNA vaccines, and countless other epidemiological terms that I wouldn't have been able to pronounce in 2019. But there's still one big question out there with no consensus even three years later. Where did COVID-19 come from? As much as theories from scientific theories to intelligence theories to straight-up conspiracy theories have evolved along with the virus, the two main possibilities have never changed. It came from nature, or it escaped from a lab. Recently, a major U.S. department reached a low-confidence conclusion that the virus was indeed the result of a lab leak. At the same time, new genetic samples seem to point to its origins in Chinese raccoon dogs. So what does the latest evidence tell us about this virus and where it came from? Will we ever conclusively be able to answer that question? And if we ever do, what would it actually change, if anything? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Umer Irfan is a correspondent at Vox. He writes about climate change, COVID-19, and energy policy. Hey, Umer. Hey, thanks for having me. Where I want to start, and I know the theory that COVID came from a lab has been around for years already, but for those who aren't familiar, could you give us the kind of nuts and bolts version of the current theory of the lab leak? In its simplest form, this is the idea that the virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, was originally being studied in a laboratory somewhere in Wuhan, China, and then escaped the laboratory by infecting a scientist or through some breach in the infection protocol, and then from there ignited the pandemic. The core of it has stayed largely the same. I think some of the political valence around it has shifted quite a bit. When it was brought up initially, you know, in the early stages of the pandemic, especially here in the United States, there was sort of a political effort to blame China. And then there was sort of a reflexive pushback on that as well, that a lot of people saw this as a way for the Trump administration to try to dissuade and, and push back for its mishandling of some of the early stages of the pandemic as well. And so it was really hard to disentangle, you know, the political forces behind this versus the actual scientific discussion. There were also some allegations completely unfounded that this was, you know, something that was engineered in a laboratory, that this right. was something that was deliberately made worse or was potentially part of a bioweapons program. There has been no evidence to date of any of those claims. But um, at an, in its simplest form, though, the idea that this was a virus that was being studied in a laboratory is the more plausible and the simpler version of the claim. And that's one where some intelligence agencies here in the United States seem to think has some credibility. Not to go over the same ground again, uh, but since we just did it for the Lab League, can you quickly give us the nuts and bolts of the natural origin theory? Um, and has that changed at all? Or are we still dealing with like the wet market that we heard about right back at the beginning? Well, the idea is that 
potentially the virus may have jumped from an animal into humans. And the reason why a natural origin appears to be a, a, an important possibility here is that, you know, almost every other virus we know has come to humans from being spread via animals, through um, animals that we keep, through agriculture, you know, things that we farm, but also through exposure to wildlife as well. And we've seen this pattern emerge before with previous iterations of coronaviruses as well. So a lot of people suspected initially that this was likely the same scenario here. Now, in China, there's also the, the added factor that there are these wildlife markets. There's a pretty robust wildlife trade in China that also goes on in major cities. And and the idea was that essentially an organism that was infected with SARS-CoV-2 or a progenitor or an ancestor virus was exposed to humans in a crowded environment where the conditions may not have been completely sanitary. And then that allowed the infection to ignite there. How come we haven't been able to pin down either of these theories after three years? What piece of the puzzle are we missing? The main thing is we don't have an ancestor of SARS-CoV-2, a thing that gave rise to it, either the virus itself in another animal or something that this current version of the virus evolved from. Now, I, I would caution a little bit of patience. You know, when it comes to tracing the origins of viruses, that can actually take decades. You know, it took 10 to 15 years to find the origins of the original SARS. Okay. And three years out, um, you know, may not be enough time. But at the same time, it also might be too much time has gone by because some of the initial evidence around the earliest cluster of cases has also been basically eliminated. You know, the market where the initial outbreak occurred, the Hunan seafood market has been closed down. The area has been scrubbed clean. So there's very little in the way of forensic evidence that you can get from there. And then similarly with the laboratory, you know, the discussion around it has also, you know, raised the hackles of the Chinese government and they've shut down outside investigations hmm. and have closed off cooperation with their scientists and have closed their books to this as well. And so a lot of the main pieces of evidence that we would need to conclusively close the gaps here on both the lab leak and the natural origin spillover have been lost to time. And we're going to need a lot more circumstantial evidence to try to figure out where this came from. So what's changed in terms of our intelligence on this um, in the past month or so here? You mentioned there are agencies in the United States that are that are making some findings, though uh, I guess we should be careful to note that they are not conclusive. Yeah, that's right. When uh, President Biden took over back in 2021, he ordered a 90-day sprint where he's told basically every intelligence agency in the U.S. to examine where SARS-CoV-2 came from. The initial report that came out back in August 2021 was inconclusive. Since then, several of these agencies have kept looking into it and have come out with conclusions to varying degrees. The strongest conclusion came from the FBI, which said that with medium confidence that it thinks that the virus originated from a laboratory. Other intelligence agencies have said that they favor a natural origin with medium to low confidence. And then most recently, it was revealed that the U.S. Department of Energy weighed in and said that they had low confidence that it perhaps originated from a laboratory. So mixed results around from the different agencies looking at different bits of evidence. In this context, what does a finding of low confidence mean? It sounds like it means they found the opposite if you take it at face value. Right. It's really hard to parse this because this is also, you know, intelligence jargon. And we don't know the exact evidence that they were looking at right now. 
CNN reported that the Department of Energy's assessment was actually not based on the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was the main lab that was suspected of being the origin of the lab leak, but rather the Wuhan CDC, so a separate laboratory in the same city. So it's it's not quite clear exactly what pieces of evidence these agencies are drawing on and how they're weighing them. But uh, a low confidence just seems to indicate that, you know, as best as they can tell, they, they're in favor of this particular explanation that this originated from a laboratory, but it's not something that they're going to hang their hat on that mm. essentially that you know they're they're open to being proven wrong and that if you take this in context with what the other intelligence agencies have found looking at different bits of evidence then perhaps the overall picture is still pretty murky is it usual to have various um intelligence agencies or departments um on totally opposite sides of something like this I'm not super familiar with how, you know, intelligence assessments are conducted generally, but it wouldn't surprise me that different intelligence agencies come to different conclusions. You know, the U.S. Department of Energy, for instance, has a lot of background in science. They right. run the National Laboratory System here in the U.S., but they also do a lot of biology research. And because they're part of the national security state, they also do a lot of studies and analysis of other countries' laboratories as well, which is one of their undercovered, underreported missions at that agency. Then you have other um, agencies Agencies that have signals intelligence. They can listen into classified um, you know, phone calls and emails and intercepts that they may be drawing on that kind of information as well. And so that's the thing that, that makes this a little bit hard to sort out is that different groups are looking at different pieces of evidence that are you know, within their respective wheelhouses. And it's when you pull them together that you get sort of a more comprehensive picture. Hmm. But now that you have different agencies on different sides of it, it's really hard to actually come to a definitive conclusion one way or another. And that's why the U.S. officials, the most senior ones, like the U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan have said that, you know, their position officially is that it's still inconclusive. What about the scientific community? I realize that's an incredibly broad term, but is any sort of consensus on, on one side or the other emerging from there? And, you know, what are those questions like? It's hard to say that there's a consensus. I mean, this has been just as a contentious an issue among scientists as it has been among policymakers. And right. uh, there are some scientists that are very entrenched in their views at this point on one side or the other. In general, though, as I mentioned earlier, that like we've seen viruses spill over from animals into humans before. This is a known pattern of exposure to viruses. This We've seen epidemic and pandemic viruses emerge through this route. So simply by playing through history, we know that this is a potential way that this could have happened. Now, the laboratory research, though, that's something of a fairly new element because we haven't had this sophistication and this level of you know, virus research being conducted until very recently that um, now more countries have this level of capability and they can do uh, more research with these viruses and modify them in ways that previously we couldn't before. And so this is uncharted territory where we don't fully know the full risks of what's possible here. And some researchers say that this is a possibility that we should keep open. I tend to, from talking to the scientists that I've talked to, you know, I, I tend to split the difference here and essentially just say that both of these scenarios seem plausible. I wouldn't say equally plausible, but they're they're plausible enough that both possibilities we should take seriously and that we should take measures to prevent both scenarios from occurring again. So you mentioned that we haven't found the ancestor that may be responsible for this virus, but a recent genetic analysis, uh, which was covered by Catherine Wu in The Atlantic last week, seems to indicate that the virus might have been present in raccoon dogs in the Wuhan market. Is that the missing link you're talking about, or uh, is that more circumstantial evidence? 
It's more circumstantial evidence, but it is more evidence. What the research team reports is that they found positive samples of the coronavirus that were taken from the Wuhan market around the time of the initial outbreak also had DNA associated with these animals. Now, it doesn't mean that these uh, raccoon dogs were the vectors for the virus, that they were actually infected themselves, but it shows that they were in very close proximity to the virus when the initial outbreak occurred. And so it shows that there were likely animals that were associated with the initial transmission of this uh, outbreak. So we don't know if it evolved in them or if they were just uh, part of the infected, I guess. What are the caveats here? Right. You know, this is not saying that they found an infected raccoon dog or that they found an ancestor of the virus in this animal. What they're saying is that when this initial outbreak occurred, in the vicinity alongside people, there were also other animals that were being traded in this market, specifically this raccoon dog, which previously we didn't know was in that vicinity at the time. So, you know, we talked about uh, the Department of Energy and kind of a low confidence finding. Um, on the other side, we have this news. Is, is this the thing that's more likely to tip it towards a natural origin, or are we still just, you know, putting apples versus oranges? This is another dot that we can connect to form the picture, but it's not enough to fully resolve exactly what happened here. I mean, again, what we would really need is some example of a virus, an ancestor to SARS-CoV-2 found in an animal mm -hmm. or an infected animal. And at this point, you know, we're just not going to get a smoking gun. The smoke has long faded away and the guns have all been destroyed. So right now, what we're trying to do is still piece together bits of circumstantial evidence and some of the surrounding information that we had from the initial stages of the pandemic. What's at stake here? And I'm not picking either side. If we could definitively learn where this virus came from, what would that change? In terms of how we move from here on out, um, in terms of biosecurity and the precautions we take, it wouldn't change much. But I mean, the politics of this are still pretty important. You know, yes. the Chinese government, were they actively covering up a leak or were they just simply trying to cover up an outbreak that they lost control over? In both scenarios, you know, what would have happened if they were in fact more open and actually called for help early on in the early stages? Could we have potentially avoided some of the worst impacts of this pandemic? You know, with that level of hindsight, that that's kind of important to assess perhaps from a liability perspective, perhaps from a political perspective, but also just generally figuring out like what is the best course of action if something like this happens again in the future. So I wouldn't say that it's a completely irrelevant question. I mean, some, some people have said that or that, you know, it's not important. I think the politics here really do matter. How we engage with other countries doing this kind of research going forward is going to be a critical element of how we reduce the risk. And so figuring out where this comes from is also an important scientific question because then we can figure out what are the other likely routes of potential exposure and then perhaps take more aggressive steps to close those off. I mean, the obvious thing that pops up to a layperson, I think, when we talk about the lab leak theory is, this is scary. This could be happening anywhere. Why are we even doing this in the first place? And how dangerous is it? Studying viruses in laboratories is pretty important. I mean, this is how we learn to counter viruses. And mm -hmm. so it, it makes sense that there are scientists around the world that are studying them. I mean, we have virus research laboratories all over the U.S. and in major cities as well. There are virus research laboratories in New York City. But the question then is, what is the scope of the research that you're doing? One of the big issues that was raised here was, you know, whether this laboratory was doing what's called gain-of-function research. Right. This is a specific type of virus research where you actually enhance the capabilities of a virus. The logic 
logic here is that if you can capture changes, potential dangerous changes in a virus in a laboratory, you can begin to counter them before they emerge in the wild. That basically you can do this in a controlled setting and then begin building up your countermeasures before potentially an outbreak occurs naturally. The risk, of course, is then you're dealing with a more dangerous virus than you have in nature. And if that virus escapes the laboratory, then you know, you've created the very problem that you were trying to solve and get ahead of. And so there are some researchers that are saying that we should have a moratorium on this or that we should explicitly ban and this kind of gain-of-function research. But more generally, there are also people saying that, you know, we should be more transparent about the kinds of virus research we're doing more generally, that the solution to this is sunlight, that uh, more countries should be more open about the kinds of science that they're doing with what kinds of viruses, and that they should make their uh, facilities more open and transparent and allow other researchers to come in and investigate as well, which is kind of counter to what the Chinese government has been doing in response to the pandemic, which is shutting things down and making their scientists not available to discuss this with other researchers. I guess if you look at the timeline of uh, discovering viral origins, as you mentioned, we're still in the relatively early stages. But just, you know, given what you've told me about the market being totally scrubbed, no access to the lab, like, what are the chances we ever know? It seems to me like most of the potential for that is long gone. What could still happen to break this open? I mean, I think one thing that could happen is that, you know, through virus surveillance, that if scientists are still going out there or still looking at natural reservoirs of this virus and looking at potential relatives of this virus that exist in nature, they may be able to find a potential transmission route. Mm. Uh, the closest relative of SARS-CoV-2 that we found to date was found in a bat population in Laos, which is about 1,500 miles away from Wuhan, where the initial epidemic happened. And so the question then is like how it crossed that divide, if that was indeed where the original virus came from. Right. Or maybe scientists find a population of bats closer to the city that was somehow exposing people or an intermediate animal, that the virus jumped from bats into another animal into humans. So connecting those dots, I mean, there, there's a lot of animals in the world. There's a lot of potential routes of exposure and you know, closing off different pathways through the process of elimination and then maybe cataloging all the different variants and versions of the the family tree of this virus could eventually reveal a more plausible route for exposure. And then on the other hand, maybe there could be a whistleblower in China who may have, you know, access to this information right. and may have more details about what actually happened or have documented the fact that this virus may have been studied at the laboratory. To date, we don't have any evidence that this particular virus or any ancestor of this virus was being studied in this laboratory, but also we don't have a lot of insight into the research that was going on there as well. The last thing I want to ask about is just uh, the politicization around the origins of this in general. And, you know, we, we talked about it, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. Does this new evidence, and here I can speak to the genetic analysis or we can speak to the Department of Energy findings, like, will it sway anyone one way or another? Or is this just like two camps locked in? Yeah, unfortunately, it does seem like there's a lot of motivated reasoning going on. And I think a lot of people have kind of aligned with one view or the other based on their priors, based on their political alignments. And it's really going to be hard to change people's minds one way or the other. Again, we're not going to get a definitive answer. We're not going to get the smoking gun that would actually, you know, answer this once and for all. And so looking at these bits of evidence, how people piece this together really depends on their own personal backgrounds and their own personal worldviews. And that's it's unlikely to change with more evidence. I guess we'll wait and see uh, what evidence we find next and we can debate it all over again. Umer, thank you so much for this. It's good to be caught up on the latest science on this. 
Thank you for having me. Umer Irfan, a correspondent at Vox. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You'll find other episodes. In fact, you will find dozens and dozens of episodes about COVID-19. I know. Shocking. If you want to share your theory, scientific or conspiracy, you can write to us. Hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can also call us and leave a voicemail, 416-935-5935. And you can get this podcast wherever you like to get them, whenever you like to get them. And when you do, make sure you rate and review. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.